Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, y'all? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. Uh, very excited for today. This is our first podcast in a super long time that we're not talking about theology of the body. Uh, for those that are just tuning in for the first time today, we're just wrapping up, or we wrapped up last week, our Theology of the Body mini-series where we dove into man when he created them. And the reason we did that is because Theology of the Body, it, for all its beauty about the body, it's really just Pope St. John Paul II's commentary on select passages of Scripture, which is why we talked about it. Because on this podcast, we really... You know, I really try to stick to talking about things pertaining to Scripture, right? Um, biblical uh, commentaries, traditions, obviously books of the Bible. I don't really dive too much into uh, dogmatic theology too much um, because unless it pertains to something in Scripture, obviously. Uh, we don't do a lot of sacramental theology, once again, unless it pertains to Scripture uh, because, once again, the, the, the focus here is uh, we're talking about the Bible, right? As a Catholic how do we read? How do we interpret the Bible with the eyes of faith and reason, with, with the eyes of the church, but also using uh, the current scholarly tools at our disposal, right? Um, one of the things we don't want to do is to dismiss current scholarship when it comes to reading the Bible. Uh, but at the same time, we also don't want to make the error of always going to what what does this passage mean to me, right? The spiritual interpretation. We want to, you know, get our hands dirty here. And that's what we try to do. That's what I try to do on this podcast. Um, and really, this involves something called method C approach to scripture. So today, in today's study, it's gonna we're gonna be spending a few weeks with this book called Politicizing the Bible by Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker. Um, and this is a re I mean, really honestly, y'all, I mean if it's not my favorite book, it's, it's, it's like top three, uh, when it comes to biblical studies. Right. Uh, and the reason be being it's because this book, what Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker do, they set up basically how we got to where we are today in, in terms of our interpretation of the Bible. Right. Uh, and, and even also politics in general, right. The book called politicizing the Bible and Basically, they're showing through looking at these key figures of the Enlightenment, the history of Enlightenment, Enlightenment figures, um, how they purposely use scripture and scriptural interpretation to reach political ends, right? Uh, some did this very maliciously and very uh, purposely, um, and others didn't really mean to do it, but they, it, the effect was the same either way. So in this miniseries, um, we're not actually going to have a, a Greek or Hebrew word of the day because this is this is a unique mini series. I know I just said we're always going to see the Bible, and it's true. We're always going to talk about the Bible, but in this mini series, we're going to get a little bit more into philosophy. But it's philosophy pertaining to interpretation, uh, how to interpret the Bible. Right? This is really really important because, you know, anytime you read a commentary, if you've ever tried to write, read a biblical commentary, you're always going to have fall into one of three methods for this for the for the author. It's going to be method A, method B, or method C. So what do you mean by that? Well, method A, interpretation of scripture, is you can think of as in like how the church has always interpreted scripture or like the church fathers always interpret scripture. Namely, they're they're seeing Christ in everything. It's always with the eyes of faith. I mean, it's always it's obviously, it's beautiful, it's valid, it's awesome. Um, but it's always with this in mind. They're always reading with the church. They're always, when they when we read something in the Old Testament, we're, we're seeing Christ in it, right? Like St. Paul did when Moses struck the rock and, you know, water gushes forth. You know, Paul says like Christ 
Um, and when he's on the cross, you know, water comes forth from his heart and it's a, and it's all these things. It's really, really beautiful. But method B is what we're really going to be focusing on studying, right? Be for the reason being, we use method C. I'll get to that in a second. So method B, what is that? Well, that is the historical critical method of scripture. So what is the historical critical method? It was so, you know, for, for a lot of, you know, reading this long, lengthy definition, essentially the, the, there's a couple goals of the historical critical method or the historical critic uh, as a person who uses this method. They're really, the attempt was to read scripture without any kind of predispositions theologically, right? To read scripture, not as a Catholic, not as a Christian, but just at face value, what is the text trying to say? Once again, they could care less about what is the text trying to say to me in my own life, my me personally. They're not trying to figure that out at all. They're really just trying to get to the nuts and bolts of what is the Bible saying? What is the author's original intention, right? Uh, more, more exactly, what is the human author's original intention in writing whatever he's writing, whatever book, right? Uh, the problem with this method is no one can be totally objective when it comes to reading scripture, right? It's just impossible. We all have lenses that we wear with all of life and even with scholarship, right? Um, you know, one thing we're going to see as we kind of go through this mini series is how the historical critical method developed over the centuries. Um, and so, but it's one of those things where the historical critical method is taking God out of the equation. And so just for a quick glimpse, when you take God out of the equation and you're neutral, you automatically have predispositions. For example, if God doesn't exist, there's an atheistic kind of tendency with the historical critical method. If God doesn't exist, therefore miracles can't exist for a lot of these people. And for, you know, um, for some, some scholars, one that we're talking about today, it's not even that God doesn't exist, but the way they kind of do philosophy, um, they, they also can throw miracles out the window and they're always trying to seek a natural cause, a natural causality with scripture. Uh, we're going to talk about more, that more today's episode. And so we use method C on the podcast here. So this is a method that was kind of, there's a phrase coined by Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict Emeritus. And so basically what is method C? Method C is using the faith of method, method A with the various tools of method B uh, because for all of its shortcomings, for all its philosophical predisposition, predispositional flaws of method B, there, there, there a lot of tools have come up, right? A lot of different methods of interpreting scripture have come up that have actually taught us a lot about the scripture, right? So the tools themselves are neutral, right? But unfortunately, it depends who wields the tool, whether that's neutral or not. And so method C is us with the eyes of faith of method A, understanding that we, we, we're in the church, we always read the Bible with the church, but we use the tools of method B to reach this method C approach. But in this mini series, we're really going to look at how method B came to be, how the historical critical method came to be, how biblical interpretation kind of is where it is today. A lot of this is also going to play into the fact of how uh, non-Catholic Christians read the Bible. It's going to help us make sense of why they see things the way they do. And we're also going to see politically how a lot of this affected uh, the world at large, right? Biblical interpretation has greatly shaped how the West looks today. So that's what we're going to be diving into today. And so each episode in the coming miniseries, we're going to be looking at a particular person within this development of a historical critical method, right? Today, we're going to look at two in particular. So we're going to look at Marsilius of Padua and William of Ockham. So Marsilius of Padua, you probably, that's probably not a super familiar name. Uh, William of Ockham, uh, you've probably heard that name before. 
Um, if not, you're about to learn something about them today. Um, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, we're going to we're gonna dive in. Uh, and so just kind of give, you know, a bit of context here. Uh, and a lot of this is we're going to be diving into the history of these figures too because the history and the, the situations around the figures really go into affecting how they then philosophically or theologically change their interpretation of Scripture, right? So with Marsilius of Padua, that's what we're going to start with today, and then we're going to end with Occam. So Marsilius of Padua, he was this bro who originally was uh, in pretty good graces with uh, with the Pope at the time, um, but there was a situation going on, right? So what's the situation? Well, we're in the year like 1275 to you know 1350, kind of in that range. So this is like not recently. This was like 800 years ago when this kind of started. Um, this was a few hundred years before the Protestant Reformation, right? And so we have this situation, right, where we have um, the German Empire, right? Um, and so we have, uh, that's, you know, Charlemagne's empire and all that stuff. Uh, it's been going on for a few centuries at this point, And there's always some, there's always some controversy when emperors die and all these things. Uh, but what happens is um, there is a period here where there is no pope, right? It took, I, I think, like three, maybe three to eight years. For some reason, I can't remember the exact number. Anyway, it's a period of at least a, a few a few years where there's no pope, right? Because it took, remember back then, it took a long time to gather all the, the cardinals that could vote. They also had to agree, right? And sometimes that takes a super long time, especially back in the day. Um, and so there's a period in time when, there, when there's no pope. This is also during the Avignon papacy, right? So the pope was not in Rome. He was in Avignon in France. And so the the people, the peeps, right? Some of the groups behind the empire, some of the head honcho royal families saw this as an opportunity um, that now that there was also an em no emperor as well to elect an emperor, right? And so you have these two families, they, they elect, they each elect their own quote unquote emperor, right? And now obviously that creates a problem politically because there can't be two emperors. Um, and so the guy that we're gonna be focused on is a guy named Ludwig or Louis the fourth. Um, and so Ludwig um, was crowned emperor uh, by the right bishop, but in the wrong place. His opponent, totally forgot his name, my bad. Anyway, uh, you can tell who wins. Uh, his opponent got crowned emperor in the right place, but by a bishop who didn't have the authority to crown him. Uh, but once again, no pope during this time. Eventually, uh, Ludwig beats out, beats the other guy, claims the, the throne for himself, and kind of makes the other guy like a puppet king, if you will. But unfortunately, what happens is uh, John the 22nd, Pope John the 22nd, is eventually elected. And he says, basically, during the conflict, you both need to renounce your crowns, right? Because I'm the only one that can elect, that can validate an emperor of the empire, because I'm the pope, right? So the, obviously, Ludwig was, wasn't a fan of this, and he basically ignored the pope, right? And so this starts this tension between the empire and the papacy, right? Uh, it raises the question of what authority does the papacy have over civil leaders, right? This is a really important question. What, what, what role does the papacy have over electing civil leaders or validating civil leaders, right? And so basically John said, you know, it wasn't valid uh, because of the papal vacancy and all these things. And it's, there's drama, right? And so there's also another situation going on. So at the time, you have uh, Marsilius, right, who was starting to work on this, what will later be uh, proclaimed a heretical document. Um, and then you have this, uh, this situation with the Franciscans, right? And we're going to talk about this a little bit more with Occam. But anyway, what's happening with the Franciscans is 
they're they're having this use ownership kind of debate amongst themselves and with the papacy. So this use ownership debate is goes down to basically, you know, the Franciscan tenet is poverty, right? And even within the Franciscans, there's different schools of thought on this. Some are, you know, some believe in strict poverty as in like you you have nothing but the the bag you wear as a as a, you know, shirt basically. And then you have other Franciscans who, you know, say yes, poverty, but let's apply this prudently. Um, and so one of the ways that you kind of went about like solving this was basically coming to an agreement with a previous Pope saying that everything that the, the Franciscans used, the pape, the Pope owned, the papacy owned. And then why did the Franciscan need to own things or need to use things? Well, it, Franciscans are order of preachers, right? But in order to preach, you have to be educated. For education, you need books. And for books, you need libraries. For libraries, you need buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Right? All this stuff costs money and they're tangible things. But the Franciscans, to live their spirituality, they didn't want to own these things, right? They, they wanted to, to truly live radical poverty. So they reached this agreement with the previous pope saying, hey, listen, you know, we're going to use these things, but you're the one that's officially going to own them, right? But with Pope uh, John XXII, when he came in, he actually uh, made this statement, right? Released a papal bull uh, saying that, you know what? No, you own them. I don't. This is your stuff, not mine, Right. And so this created a controversy, right? And so going back to Ludwig, because of his conflict with the Pope, um, he then became kind of a, a the place for papal enemies to go run and hide. So that's when Marsilius and Occam come into play. By this point, Marsilius had released uh, his document that was later claimed heretical, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, and he ran away and uh, started chilling with Ludwig. And then William of Ockham, who actually had been sent, we're going to talk about this later too, later been sent to Avignon uh, because he was charged with heresy, uh, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And so anyway, but he was also within these Franciscans who were debating the Pope. Uh, so anyway, they eventually jet off to Ludwig as well. And so why does all this matter? <laughs> well, it matters. I, I promise this matters, right? Uh, but it's important for us to know kind of a background, a history of the situation at large uh, when it comes to these people. So Marsilius in particular, so Marsilius of Padua, uh, he was a doctor. Um, he was also a philosopher. But he, most importantly for us, uh, he was really a devout student of Averroism. Sorry, Averroism. Averroism um, was based as a study, as a philosophical approach uh, coined by this Muslim philosopher who studied Aristotle and Plato. And so basically, um, this really affected Marsilius's education. He became um, an avarice essentially and so philosophically this created a lot of problems basically uh, this line of thinking kind of laid the foundation for saying that if something you know agrees with you philosophically if it doesn't agree with your theo agree with your theology then sometimes you can lean more towards your philosophy than your theology and that that gets problematic right um, and so because the reality is there are things within Aristotle and Plato that are contra contrary to church teaching, right? And so what Aquinas does, right, is he corrects Aristotle. But there's there's another school of thought that didn't correct Aristotle that just assumed everything he said was right, and therefore they felt the need to correct the church and, and official church teaching. Obviously, that gets problematic. And so Marsilius uh, creates or starts writes this document called Defensor Pacis, right, uh, Defender of Peace, and this did a few really important things, um, and it was proclaimed heretical. And so, essentially, what did this do? It primarily promoted this idea 
of the subversion of religion or papal power to uh, political reason, right, or political power. Basically saying that uh, the peace on earth, right, is the most important thing. And so, therefore, the political peace, right, the peace of the people being the most important thing, it obviously, is for him, the, the politicians, the kings, the monarchs, needed to have the final say. The buck needed to stop with them. The buck should not stop with the pope on matters of faith and morals. It really did boil down to what defend, what was going to bring about uh, peace on earth, right? And also in this document, this obviously wanted to subvert the priesthood to political power as well, basically saying that the priests answer to uh, their monarch or their king uh, of their of where they're at. And so he used scripture to justify this, right? He he quoted, you know, in Luke's gospel, peace on earth and and, and peace to people of goodwill, right? A glory to God in the highest and peace to people of goodwill. Um, and peace on earth and peace to people of goodwill. Um, and so peace on earth, this earthly peace for him in defense of Pashis was the highest good. It was the greatest goal, right? And this actually sets up this uh, idea of sola scriptura, right? It sets up this idea of sola scriptura. It's kind of like a pre-Reformation uh, sola scriptura. And so we have this quote from Hahn and, and Weicker, and this is what they say about this in particular. So Marsilius set forth a kind of pre-Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, asserting that for salvation, it is necessary for us to believe in or to acknowledge the certainty or truth of no statements or writings except those which are called canonic. That is, those which are contained in the volume of the Bible. By this maneuver, Marsilius hopes to nullify the authority of any papal bulls, decretals, or other pronunciations. So what he does in, in the Fincer Pachis is he's saying that it's a pre-sola scriptura, like Han Weicker say. Basically, what does that mean? It's saying that the only thing as Christians we're obligated to believe in are things within the Bible or that pertain to salvation, right? And so that means everything that the Pope writes, everything that the church puts out as Christians, we're not morally obligated to listen and obey, right? And so he sets up this sola scriptura, um, which once again kind of lays this foundation for where we're going with this, right? So hard shift of gears, now looking at William of Ockham, right? In most of the, these episodes, we're not going to do two. Uh, it's just important for us to do two here because it sets up uh, where all the other future figures go because we're going to do this chronologically as well to a certain extent. So William of Ockham, right? So uh, he studied in England, right? He studied at Oxford, and he was accused of two big heresies, right? The first one, Pelagianism, namely that we take the first step towards God. After God sees your first step, then he gives you grace. Total heresy, renounced by the Catholic Church. It's a big no-no. Um, and then also... He was, he was accused of problematic Eucharistic theology. And we'll get to that why in a second. And so uh, once he goes to Avignon to, you know, basically def, uh, defend himself against these accusations, that's when this use ownership debate is really heating up. And so basically what happens is uh, the head of the Franciscan order at the time, him and a few other bros and the Franciscans, um, you know, once John the 22nd rescinds the previous Pope's uh, proclamation that no, it's your stuff, not ours. They accuse John the 22nd of heresy, right? They call him the, the heretic of heretics, right? And so then they flee Avignon to Ludwig. Well, that basically what happened is once they left, they were then excommunicated from the church because, you know, basically legally, canonically, that's saying, well, 
you were accused of heresy, you were called to defend your case, and you fled. So we're you're you're saying you're a heretic, basically, right? You don't want to defend your case. At least that's how John the Twenty Second justified it. Um, and so, for William of Ockham, in all fairness to Ockham, right, he wasn't super malicious. So Marcellus was a bit more malicious. What he wrote was very intentionally trying to subvert um, the religion to the secular state, right? It's very, very intentional, right? With William of Ockham, he wasn't super intentional. He wasn't malicious. He was genuinely, I think, searching for the truth. But unfortunately for him, him and Marcellus were buddies. They knew each other. And Marcellus used Ockham's philosophical reasoning, which we'd say poor reasoning to a certain extent, and then um, he used it to justify his later work uh, as well. And so Occam, while not malicious, was well-intentioned, but unfortunately he was taught by kind of the same peeps as uh, Marsilius as well. And so it's one of those things where his education formation was not that of Aquinas, right? Um, and I hope, I wish him and Aquinas would have met and, you know, could have duked it out. But anyway, and so for Occam, um, he thought that civil peace could be brought about after religious disputes were solved, right? And so, so he's quoted um, saying this. So he says this. Some believe that all the dissensions, wars, fights, and battles, and the destructions and devastations of cities and regions, and the countless other evils which have occurred in Italy for many years past, and still do not cease, have resulted from the riches of the Roman church. It would have been beneficial for the whole church of God if the Roman church had in fact indeed imitated the apostles' poverty and their way of living, putting at a distance all display in respect of vessels, clothes and furnishings, generally guarded and other kinds of servant and all sorts of other things, right? So once again, he's accusing the church of, you know, basically saying like all these wars and stuff could have been stopped by you if you just would have lived lives of extreme poverty. You can see his Franciscan nature coming out. But he also says this too, right? So, we, Occam asserts that, this is the quote, for the sake of necessity, it is permissible to act against a divine commandment, even one that is explicit, in things not evil in themselves, but evil only because they are prohibited. Therefore, also, for the sake of the common utility, it is permissible to act against a commandment of God and an ordinance of Christ. Therefore, even if Christ had ordained that one highest pontiff should be set over all the faithful, it would be permissible for the faithful, for the sake of common utility, to establish some other regime, at least for a time. So once again, this is a philosophical thought of Occam. And what's he saying? For Occam, once again, like uh, Marsilius, his highest goal is like peace on earth to a certain extent, right? And so for Occam, he then justifies it, even if, you know, God commands something, you know, even if he had commanded a, a, a pope, right? If it brings about peace on earth, it could be justifiable to ignore God, to ignore the pope, ignore the, the precepts of Christ for the sake of, he says, common utility, namely civil peace, right? And so hopefully you see why that's so problematic because as Catholics, we're like, no, dude, like if God tells you to do something, like that's the bro you listen to, even if it caused unrest, right? And so Occam really brings about this uh, two things. We, have you probably heard of Occam's razor, right? Namely that the simplest solution is always the best one, 
that's problematic in a lot of ways because it's stupid in a lot of ways. Um, and it's just not true, right? Sometimes this, sometimes answers have to inherently be complex or complicated, right? Um, so that's problematic. That's not really what I'm gonna talk about too much though. Uh, the one that's really going to affect everything going forward is this idea of nominalism, right? Nomos is, it comes from the Latin for name. And so what is nominalism? Well, nominalism basically says a few things, right? But uh, primarily it says that there are no natures. Which you think of Chase, what the heck does that mean? Why is that important? Well, in, in traditional thought and in current Catholic thought today, we believe that things act according to their nature, right? Why does a tree go? Well, it's a tree and it acts according to its nature. Awesome, cool. And so that's why it's, it's treeness, right? It's, it's tree. It's a tree. Why does a dog bark? Well, it barks because it's a dog and that's what dogs do. It barks. Um, and so why do humans are able to communicate, read, write, abstract? Well, it's because we have a human nature. We act according to our human nature. And we have this idea of universals, right? Namely, if you were to fly to a country you've never been to before, so for me, never been to Japan. If I were to fly to Japan today, land in Japan, and if I saw a tree which species I've never seen before, I could still identify it as a tree. Why? Because I have the, I have the, the nature of tree, this, this idea of tree in my head. And this is a true, this is a real thing. It's, it's a, it's a, the idea can be a real thing, right? I know it is a tree, even though I've never seen it, this particular tree before, right? So this idea of nature's universal realities, right? Universal natures. Um, and this applies also to God. God has a divine nature. This is you know, huge in Catholic theology. We say that Jesus has one nature and two persons, right? He, or sorry, that's a heresy. Uh, he's one person, but two natures. Um, he's, you know, fully divine, fully human, but only one person, right? One person, two natures. Um, so we, he has a divine nature. God has a divine nature, three persons, one nature in the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He, it's a, it's a, he acts according to his nature, right? So, but nominalism doesn't doesn't do that right nominalism says that everything is particulars there is no universals there is no thing as a universal nature there's only particular in all fairness to Occam right he did this because he felt the need not to bind God he didn't want to bind God in the sense of if God has to do something according to his nature well that for Occam that meant God wasn't omnipotent right all-powerful because if that's true, he can only do things according to his nature, that would limit him. And Occam didn't want to limit God. But the correct understanding isn't that God acting according to his nature is a limitation. It's rather just living his divine nature fully, right? And so nominalism becomes problematic because everything becomes arbitrary, right? Everything is the way it is simply because God said so. If God said murder was cool and like it wasn't a problem, then it could be for nominalism, right? But the only reason we say murder is evil and wrong and all these things is because God said it wasn't, right? So we're just acting as God's arbitrary, you know, uh, commands, essentially, right? And so this is problematic in a lot of ways, especially um, moving forward in history because we're going to, next week, we're going to look at Martin Luther, right? And how nominalism and Augustinian theology, he tried to merge these two realities, and that, that's how he came to the, a lot of the conclusions that he came to, right? So nominalism, no bueno, right? So we have these two figures, um, Marsilius and William of Ockham. And so what are the results of both these thinkers, right? And so one of the, the result one is that we have this, this idea of laws based on nature, um, 
where miracles are impossible. What does that mean? So it's a law-based nature. So everything is the way it is because God said so, right? God uh, willed and spoke these laws of nature into motion, and therefore miracles are impossible because that would act according to the commands of God. Okay. Two, materialism rose, right? This idea that if peace on earth is the most important thing, that means that means uh, materialism was becoming forefront, right? The subversion of the, the religious to the secular was on the rise. Um, there's also no analogy of being. And so we're not going to get into this too much, um, but there's an analogy of being that's super important when it comes to philosophy. Uh, Google Tom Squinus analogy of being, if you want to read more about that. Um, and then the next one is starting to steer the West towards secularism. Why? Well, you have uh, Ludwig, the emperor, the holy, uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, now basically telling the Pope, screw you, dude. You're not the most important dude. I'm the most important dude. And all the priests and all the bishops I allow in my empire answer to me because the state civil peace is the most important thing. So the steering of the West towards secularism. Uh, the next thing, and this is really important, is the hermeneutic of suspicion, right? The hermeneutic of suspicion. And this is basically saying that everything in the Bible, we should question. We should, we should question it. We should look for natural causes within it. And it's this idea that we can't take anything for face value. We're always questioning. It's a hermeneutic of suspicion, right? This is really important for later on. And then um, Occam, finally, like we read, re rejects everything that's not necessary for salvation, rejects papal authority, rejects papal bulls. Unless you want to believe it, then that's cool. But we reject everything unless it's necessary for salvation or it, it basically it means it comes from the Bible. All right, y'all. Well, that is, that's like 30 minutes right there. I had to rush a little bit to get everything in, but it's really, really important. So um, this this series, I'm actually really excited about because it really lays the foundation historically into like why we are in the shape we are today in this country um, in biblical scholarship. Super, really, super important. Um, and hopefully I didn't say too many her heresies that I didn't catch in this episode. But thank you so much for joining me on Catholics with Bibles and we will see you next time. God bless y'all. Oh man, we did it guys. We did it in 30 minutes. As always, I try to keep these podcasts to 30 minutes or less because anything more than that sometimes and people's brains just start turning to mush. And also it means you can listen to it during your lunch break or during a jog or when you're driving in the car and it's pretty easy. So um, the book we're studying and going through is called Politicizing the Bible by Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker. If you want to know more about any of these topics, buy the book. It's great. Support your local theologian. Um, so thanks for tuning in guys. We'll see you next time. God bless.